study just because of the different things that were going on. So let me just uh, remind us. And you can go almost all the way to the bottom there, Isaac, almost all the way to the bottom. And uh, you can go all the way to the bottom, and I'll tell you how many to go up. Okay. Okay, you see that brown one right there, third up? Yeah, you can go right there. Okay, so you can start the slide. Oh, now it goes all the way to the beginning. There we go. Can you go down to the bottom there, Isaac? Bottom right hand corner? That screen there? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thank you. So... Uh, just to remind where we're at now, we're in our church history series now, we're at the section of the uh, early apostolic fathers, and we've been looking at the earliest writings that we have after the New Testament was completed. And so, so far, we've gone through the Didache, we've gone through the letter of Clement of Rome when he wrote to the Corinthians, we looked at the letter to Diognetes, we looked at Barnabas's letter. And then last time, we mentioned the fragments of Papias. Now, we don't have a whole lot of his writings, sadly. It would definitely be interesting if more of uh, his writings were discovered later on. But he's spoken of very, very highly amongst the other believers. And uh, we talked about the fact that he was a disciple of John the Apostle, and he wanted to have a right interpretation of the Scriptures, and so he made an effort to understand uh, what did the apostles teach and who were those who actually heard the apostles teach? Because remember, he lived shortly after uh, the apostles had died as far as when he was an older man. And so he wanted to know what was their interpretation of the scriptures. We also talked about the fact that he was a premillennialist and that we know for sure. And the, in the early church writings that we have, at least the majority of the, the earliest church fathers were pre-millennial, and so we mentioned that as well. Now you can click on to the next one there, Isaac. We last time stopped by looking at, and you can click again. Yeah, you click again there. The letters will pop up. The letters of Ignatius. Now, Ignatius wrote letters to different churches, and some of those churches we know of in the New Testament, Ephesus and Smyrna and Philadelphia, Rome, and we were looking at some of the uh, important things that he mentioned in those letters. We looked at some theological issues, how he clearly gives indication of the doctrine of the Trinity. He mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all involved in the work of salvation, and how each of those persons is distinct from one another. And then we also looked at so many times in his writings, he refers directly to Jesus Christ as God. And he affirms the deity of Christ. He also affirms the humanity of Christ, which is very important when you think of different false teachings that were circling around at that time and different cults even that we have today that would deny the deity of Christ. When we go back to these early writings, we see that these early church teachers affirmed these doctrines. Also, we talked about how with Ignatius, you see a change taking place when it comes to church polity. We talked about how when you look at the New Testament, the local churches were all led by a plurality of bishops, also known as elders or presbyters, pastors as well. But with Ignatius, you begin to see a change. While we respect and agree with his desire to have good church order, 
we do see a change in that he talks about the churches being led now by one bishop, and under that bishop you have the elders and the presbyters. Not all the churches, though. When he writes to the church at Rome, you still see that they're led by a plurality of elders, and they were till about 150, 160 A.D. And uh, not all the people that he writes, not all the churches were led by just one bishop, but more are. So you begin to see a mix where some of the churches were still led by a group of bishops, whereas some of them were just led by one. And so we talked about that as well. Now, I want to read from section 7 of his letter to the church at Smyrna, and it's concerning the Lord's Supper, and he writes concerning the way that some of the false teachers, namely the Gnostics, were refusing to take part in the Lord's Supper. He uses the word Eucharist, and I again said, don't let that term scare you, especially if you have a Roman Catholic background. You know, Eucharist just means a giving of thanks, and so referring to the Lord's Supper. But here's what he says concerning them. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they confessed not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. <clears throat> now, when he mentions this, it's really important to understand that the Gnostics who were a group of false teachers, and there there were some variations uh, of their teaching among them. But many of the New Testament writers, such as the Apostle John, writes against them. And the early church teachers, after the New Testament was completed, continued to write against them, and Ignatius is here. They had a teaching that the spirit of a man is good, but the flesh is evil. And so they denied that Jesus Christ actually came in the flesh. And I told you before about, you know, one of the stories where you have Jesus and the disciples walking on the beach and the disciples are leaving tracks in the sand. But supposedly Jesus didn't leave any tracks in the sand because they denied that he had a physical body. And so because of that, they would not partake of the supper because they would not believe in bread and wine memorializing the flesh and the blood of Christ. And so that's what Ignatius is writing about here. Now, what's sad about that is, is this is one of those passages that Roman Catholic historians will grab a hold of and say, see here, Ignatius is affirming the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the body or that the bread and the wine at the mass actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. But that's not, Ignatius didn't even have anything like that in his mind here. In fact, the doctrine of transubstantiation as we have it today was not fully developed until about 900 years after Ignatius. And there were many different philosophical beliefs that were picked up from Aristotle that had to be developed and mixed in with Scripture in order to get what we know today as the doctrine of transubstantiation. But Ignatius simply did not have that view. Neither did the other church fathers in his day do that. So again, that's just an example. Good morning, Mike. That's just an example of many times, I've explained this, where you have people today trying to to make the church fathers into who they are. You can't do that. And I mentioned before, we can't do that either. I mean, we've mentioned before, if there is an error amongst the church, and we looked at Barnabas, we talked about some of the things that he mentioned weren't exactly biblical, but you don't try to turn every church father into who you are. And the Roman Catholics do that in a horrific way. But anyway, so I just wanted to mention that. Now, 
I will also mention that the early church at this time did take the Lord's Supper to the sick who could not attend the church services. And I mention that because oftentimes most churches like ours don't do that today. But they did not carry the Lord's Supper along as a host. They did not worship it. They did not refer to themselves as caring God or anything like that. You don't have any of that. And in fact, you don't see any of the strange superstitions that developed about the Lord's Supper that we have in the medieval period. Let me just give you an example. There are different questions that would come up, such as what do you do if the wine spills on the ground? What do you do with the wine if it is literally the blood of Christ? You have that in the medieval period. Or what do you do if a mouse takes some of the bread? Because they would believe that that was... these that that's literally the body of Christ. So they had these different questions of what do we do? And there's different stories, such as there's there's one story that supposedly that bees took a host away to their hive. And people believe this. And so they went to the hive and they cut open the hive. And what they say they saw was is the host was there in the middle and all the bees were bowed down and worshiping the host. So these were some of the superstitions that developed. None of these things even were close. Uh, None of the thinking, I should say, of the early church fathers was anything close uh, to this. So I'll just mention that. Now, two other sections I just want to read here. One, in Ignatius' letter to Polycarp, he writes uh, an important creedal statement in section number three. He says concerning Jesus, look for him who is above all time, eternal and invisible, yet who became visible for our sakes, impalpable and impassable, yet who became passable on our account and who in every kind of way suffered for our sakes. So there you have again an affirmation of the deity of Christ, the eternality of Christ, and the fact that he became man and he took on flesh. So important statement there. The last thing we'll mention concerning Ignatius is his desire for martyrdom. And I'm going to read some sections from his letter to the Romans just to show you this. Now, if you know, martyr means one who testifies or gives witness. And eventually it came to refer to anyone who died giving witness uh, because it happened so often. So many Christians were martyred for giving witness for Christ. And, of course, we know that we have principles that are laid out for us in Scripture concerning how we are to react to persecution. One of the things Jesus tells us is that if you are persecuted in one city, flee to the next. And so you have a principle there that gives us the option of fleeing. Uh, At the same time, though, we see in Scripture that if we're put in the situation where we're forced to either deny Christ or compromise or be persecuted, tortured, and maybe killed, We're not to deny Christ. We are to be willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the sake of his gospel. But we see in the early church that there are are those who refuse to flee. But we also see the practice of there were many who sought out martyrdom. They actively sought it out. And sometimes that ended up okay, good, I guess you could say. Sometimes it didn't. Uh, But Ignatius was arrested, and what he asked he knows he's going to be put to death he knows he's probably going to be either burned alive or uh thrown over to the wild beasts and he asks the church at rome don't try to rescue me i want to die 
as a martyr. Uh, remember at this time that at different periods uh, throughout the first few hundred years of the church, Christians were told that they had to throw in incense to the sacrifice for Caesar and, and to affirm at least that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is a deity. And if they did not do that, they were persecuted, oftentimes burned or thrown to the wild beasts, to the lions, to the bears in the, in the Colosseums that they had where the gladiators would fight. And it was there as a show. And the people were so depraved, it's, it's just disgusting when you read the early writings where when the beast would jump on them, if blood would shoot out, they would say, well washed, well washed, and all kinds of stuff, such as uh, the blood is washing the people that it, that it, uh, that it lands on and things. Just, just a, a horrifically depraved society. We have that now in our society in a light way with the, the movies, the graphic videos, and the video games. It's like... Uh, the Roman Empire light, you could say. Uh, so the desire is still there in the sinful hearts of, of men and women, uh, but nevertheless, we haven't reached the point that it was yet. Can I say something yeah. about that, about how it, it's never enough? Because even you think, like, like UCF, and I mean, I, I don't watch that stuff, but I know it's out there, right? Well, men beating the tar out of each other and splattering blood all over the audience wasn't enough. So what did they do? Now they got women women, right? They bring the women yep. into the cage, and their blood flying in the, in the place just goes berserk, bloodthirsty, devoid of any, you know, just absolute reprobates. It's, it's amazing to watch it. Yeah. Just, it just continues. It gets, that's not going to be enough. Pretty soon it'll be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can remember we were in the airport last year going to India. We were stuck in Chicago. That We had to try to find a restaurant, and all the COVID stuff was going on, so people would panic with all kinds of stuff. And then we'd go into a restaurant there in the airport. The only table there was against the wall, and against the wall was this huge TV screen, and women just beating the blood out of each other. And I just, yeah. we are not eating here. I will starve tonight before we sit here at this TV. So thankfully, we got somewhere else. But I just thought, you know, it was just horrible. But here we go. This is what was going on in the Roman Empire, and they would put the Christians there, and they would just enjoyed watching them uh, killed by the beasts. But listen to some of the things uh, that Polycarp uh, excuse me, that Ignatius says here when he writes to the church at Rome. He says, Suffer me to become food for the wild beasts, through, though, through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and may leave nothing of my body so that when I have fallen asleep in death, I may be no trouble to anyone. Then shall I truly be a disciple of Christ when the world shall not see so much as my body. Entreat Christ for me that by these instruments I may be found a sacrifice to God. And so we see here how he shows I mean, I don't know what was going on in his heart, but no fear. Don't rescue me. I want this to happen to me. Okay, then um, the next section here, section number five. May I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me, and I pray they may be found eager to rush upon me, which also I will entice to devour me speedily and not deal with me as with some whom out of fear they have not touched. In other words, sometimes the beasts wouldn't actually attack the people. He's saying, if they don't, I'm going to tell them, 
you know, come, I'm going to entice them to do so. But if they be unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. And then he says, pardon me in this. I know what is for my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple and let no one of, of things visible or invisible envy me that I should attain to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocations of bones, let cutting off of members, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the dreadful torments of the devil come upon me, only let me attain to Jesus Christ. So I don't think that his motive is, just bring all of this on. His, his point is, is, whatever sufferings the wicked ones and the devil brings upon me, may it sanctify me more, and may Jesus Christ be glorified in it. And so that's what he's saying. Then in section 6, All the pleasures of the world and all the kingdoms of this earth shall profit me nothing. It is better for me to die in behalf of Jesus Christ than to reign over all the ends of the earth. And then he says, Him I seek who died for us. Him I desire who rose again for our sake. While I desire to belong to God, do not ye give me over to the world. Permit me to be an imitator of the passion of my God. If any one of him, if anyone has him within himself, let him consider what I desire and let him have sympathy with me as knowing how I am straightened. In other words, he's saying, please let me go through with this. And then he says, for though I am alive while I write to you, yet I am eager to die. My love has been crucified, and there is no fire in me desiring to be fed. But there is within me a water that liveth and speaketh, saying to me inwardly, Come to the Father. I have no delight in corruptible food, nor in the pleasures of this life. I desire the bread of God, the heavenly bread, the bread of life, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became afterwards of the seed of David and Abraham. And I desire to drink of God, namely his blood, which is incorruptible love and eternal life. And then lastly, in section 8, I no longer wish to live after the manner of men, and my desire shall be fulfilled if ye consent. I have not written to you according to the flesh, but according to the will of God. If I shall suffer, ye have wished well to me, but if I am rejected, ye have hated me. And so again, he just shows, let me go through with this. I want to die as a martyr for Christ. So they saw this as the greatest privilege you could possibly have, is to die as a martyr glorify Christ thereby, and then go to be with him and no longer be in this world. And so we see here that is the writings of Ignatius concerning that, and he did die as a martyr. And we have the account of his martyrdom, but I'm not going to go through that one. But he was faithful to his words. He wasn't just you know, speaking out of, out of fleshliness, I don't think. He went through with it. And so that's what we'll end with concerning Ignatius. I just wonder if he was reading yeah, I'm sure he had a copy of that. <laughs> yeah, so what, what a complete opposite, isn't it? Okay, so we're going to move on next then to Polycarp. So you can click twice there, Isaac. Okay, and so we have concerning Polycarp, one letter that he wrote to the Philippians. And then we also have an account written concerning his martyrdom. Now, Polycarp was born around A.D. 70, and he dies uh, about 155 A.D. And we actually know more about his martyrdom than we do about his life. 
But we know that he was a disciple of John the Apostle. That's according to Irenaeus, another church father. And again, at this time, you have some changes going on. You have some churches led by bishops, some churches led by one bishop with the presbyters under them. Polycarp was in one of those churches. Now he was in the church of Smyrna, and he was the bishop, the singular bishop of the church in Smyrna. We have this epistle that he wrote to the Philippians, and in this epistle he deals with orderliness in the church. And so I'm just going to read a few sections out of there because it seems here, first of all, what I read, that the church at Philippi was still being led by a plurality of, of presbyters. But here's what he writes in section uh, number five. He tells them, be subject to the presbyters and the deacons. And then in section six, he says, and let the presbyters be compassionate and merciful to all, bringing back those that wander, visiting all the sick, and not neglecting the widow, the orphan, or the poor. And so he talks there about some of the responsibilities of the presbyters, but we don't see in his letter, uh, we never see him mentioning a singular bishop. And then he speaks about the love of the brethren in section 10. He says, loving the brotherhood and being attached to one another, joined together in the truth, exhibiting the meekness of the Lord in your intercourse with one another and despising no one. And so we see here, uh, again, just the desire to see godly unity in the church, unity that's around the sound doctrine that was passed on from the apostles in Scripture, and orderliness in the church, orderliness. And that's what we saw a lot of with Ignatius as well. And then in section number 11, he grieves concerning a presbyter by the name of Valens who uh, had to be put under church discipline and he desired to see the repentance. But he says, I'm greatly grieved for Valens who was once a presbyter among you because he so little understands the place that was given him in the church. And then later he says, um, I am deeply grieved therefore brethren for him, that is Valens and his wife, to whom may the Lord grant true repentance. And be then moderate in regard to this matter, and do not count such as enemies, but call them back as suffering and straying members, that ye may save your whole body, for by so acting ye shall edify yourselves. So again, church discipline was taking place, and that's what we see in the churches after the New Testament was written. We see it in the New Testament, we see the early churches were faithful in that, and they were to do it with the right spirit and with the right attitude, the desire to bring them back to repentance. Even if it was a presbyter, he was still accountable to the church, he was accountable to the other presbyters in the church, and he too could be put out until he was brought to repentance, and it seems his wife was involved in this as well. And so that's what we need. We need this good and godly order in the churches. And again, just think about the United States today. There are many faithful churches that do practice this, but the majority do not. And again, we have to wonder, what does Christ think of that when there is no more discipline and accountability in the churches, when there is sin, when there is unrepentant, blatant sin? And it's an evidence that there is a lack of the work of the Holy Spirit in those churches. And so if the Holy Spirit is, is there in a powerful way, you will see godliness, orderliness, accountability will, will be there and not these compromises. Then section four, I'll just quickly read just some uh, family counsel. He says, next teach your wives to walk in the faith given to them and in love and purity, tenderly loving their own husbands in all truth and loving all others equally in all chastity and to train up their children in the knowledge and fear of God. So simply what we see in Scripture 
And again, we see here the importance of mothers in the church. This was seen as a very important role because, again, we're talking here about the next generation, raising up the next generation. And it's, it's just always seen as, from you see it in the Old Testament and New Testament, very, very important. And again, let's just be reminded of the conference we had a couple of weeks ago. Again, the agenda, the blatant agenda that we have in our country right now. Why is it that the Marxists for so long have been promoting pornography and all this wickedness and books, magazines, movies, and why do they promote the feminist movement? It's to destroy marriage. It's to get men off track. It's to be unfaithful in their marriage. And it's to get women off track and trying to influence them to, to see their lives as worthless and having no meaning unless they're out and, and working under some you know, CEO of some big corporate organization, company. And that's just wrong, and that's just unbiblical. But they know if they do that, then they get the kids. And then they can train the kids into Marxist socialist ideologies. Again, he, he mentioned there when, when people are polled, 40 and under right now in the United States, people 40 years old and under, 70% of them when questioned would agree with socialism. Now, they wouldn't necessarily say, yes, I agree with socialism, but they believe in the principles in socialism. 35% of those agree with communism. And so it's not just, and again, in these public schools, it's not just what they're taught, it's what they're not taught. Because there's so many things that they should know that they don't know. And so that's why it is just so dangerous. But then they get the kids, they get the next generation, and so, again here, mothers in the church, your role is so important. And your calling is so important. And don't ever believe the secular lies that your life is meaningless unless you're out in doing what these other feminists are doing and doing what these men are doing. Because understand the agenda. They're deceiving you in order so that they get the children... And so in order that their children will just be socialist robots believing whatever they tell them. And so that's very important to remember. Yep, absolutely. I mean, wasn't COVID so revealing? Wasn't it so revealing just to show how so many people are just, just robots, just yes, whatever you say. But they've been educated to be that way. So... Very important for us to consider. Okay, finally, in section one, he mentions the saints as a he, he calls all believers saints, and he mentions the elect salvation by grace, not by works, and it's by the will of God. He call he says here, uh, he calls the believers saints, and he says they are indeed the diadems of the true elect of God and our Lord. And then he says at the end of that section that we may enter, uh, knowing that we, we are saved by grace, you are saved, not of works, but by the will of God through Jesus Christ. And so again, affirming very clearly those uh, foundational gospel truths that we have even in the New Testament. Now we have some time yet this morning, so what I'm going to do now is we're going to look at the accounts of the martyrdom of Polycarp. We just have this one letter but then we also have the account of his martyrdom. Uh, we're not going to read the whole account, but we're going to read certain sections of that. You know, it was a practice in many of the early churches after the New Testament was completed 
to read accounts of the martyrs to their congregation. It was very encouraging for them and uh, convicting and just very helpful. So we're going to do that too here, but uh, we're not going to read the whole thing, but certain sections of it. This letter was written to the, by the church of Smyrna. That's where Polycarp was a bishop. And they write this to the church at Philomelium and also to all the congregations. But here's how it starts, and I, I'm going to pull this out for a reason because I want you to understand. It says, The church of God which sojourns at Smyrna, to the church of God sojourning at Philomelium, and to all the congregations of the holy and Catholic church in every place. Now again, don't let that terminology give you a wrong way of thinking. Uh, when we mention here, when, when they mention the holy and Catholic church, they're not talking about what would later become Roman Catholicism, historically. In fact, if we lived at this time, we would have no trouble calling ourselves a part of the Catholic Church. Catholic simply means universal. And so at this time, the terminology was used to distinguish themselves, the true Christians, from the different heretical groups that existed at this time. Whether if it was the Gnostics or the Judaizers, the universal church was those Christians who were faithful to Scripture. So even now, I mean, just so it doesn't bring about any confusion, I would have no problem being referred to as a Catholic in this way. I'm not saying a Roman Catholic, okay, please. But I would have no problem uh, using that same kind of terminology if I'm clarifying what I'm meaning. Uh, because the word Catholic isn't sinful, right? Uh, but we know that what later became Roman Catholicism is a heretical and a false church with a false gospel. We understand that. But again, that doesn't mean that when we read these earliest writings that we Im immediately think, hey, well, what's going on here? The Catholic Church? Uh, so even this is later when different creeds are written. You know, it, it mentions the Catholic Church. Don't let that, that confuse you. Now, they write to the true Christians in every place, everyone that would read. And here, Polycarp uh, will be arrested, and he will stand trial, and he will die as a martyr. But let me just read, I'll start in section 2. It says, concerning the martyrs, And looking to the grace of Christ, they despised all the torments of this world, redeeming themselves from eternal punishment by the suffering of a single hour. Now, they're not saying there that they earned their salvation by suffering. Uh, but remember, the issue is, is they persevered in the faith, demonstrating that their faith was genuine by their work. So again, not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, but just so you don't misunderstand. For this reason, the fire of their savage executioners appeared cool to them. For they kept before their view escape from that fire which is eternal and never shall be quenched and looked forward with the eyes of their heart to those good things which are laid up for such as endure. Then later it says, And in like manner those who were condemned to the wild beasts endured dreadful tortures, being stretched out upon beds full of spikes and subjected to various other kinds of torments in order that if it were possible, the tyrant might by their lingering tortures lead them to a denial of Christ. Now he mentions a man by the name of Germanicus here in section 3 and how he remained faithful, but how others 
who wanted, who sought out martyrdom, didn't remain faithful. Now, let's just listen here. For the devil did indeed invent many things against them, but thanks be to God, he could not prevail over all. For the most noble Germanicus strengthened the timidity of others by his own patience and fought heroically with the wild beasts. For when the proconsul sought to persuade him and urged him to take pity upon his age, he attracted the wild beast towards himself and provoked it, being desirous to escape all the more quickly from an unrighteous and impious world. But upon this whole multitude, marveling at the nobility of mind displayed by the devout and godly race of Christians, cried out, Away with the atheists, let Polycarp be sought out. So they, again, they, they referred to Christians as atheists. That is because they, they denied that the idols of Rome were, were gods. But here they see the faithfulness of Germanicus and how he was willing to die as a martyr, so they want Polycarp. They say, we want Polycarp, we want him put to death. Now, one named Quintus, who was but lately come from Pergia, when he saw the wild beasts, became afraid. This was the man who forced himself and some others to come forward voluntarily for trial. Him, the proconsul, after many entreaties, persuaded to swear and to offer sacrifice. Wherefore, brethren, we do not commend those who give themselves up to suffering, seeing the gospel does not teach so to do. So they talk about this man, Quintus, who brings others before the trial, and he, he's, coming, he, he's presenting himself as, before them, I'm not going to sacrifice to Caesar. But he wasn't sought out. He sought out martyrdom. And then what happens? He ends up sacrificing. So it's, it's a reminder to us that we can never endure the tortures or martyrdom unless God gives us the grace to do so. I mean, that's just plain and simple. Uh, we would never know what we would do in that circumstance. I guess we could probably say we'd probably deny Christ unless God gave us the grace. But I say probably because... Throughout history, there are heretics who suffered martyrdom for their heretical beliefs. Uh, there are pagans who would die for their pagan beliefs. So I'm not saying in every circumstance, but in general, uh, we could not endure without God giving us the, the grace to do so. But the most admirable Polycarp, when he first heard that he was sought for, was in no measure disturbed, but resolved to continue in the city. However, Indifference to the wish of many, he was persuaded to leave it. So Polycarp flees Smyrna. He departed, therefore, to a country house not far distant from the city. There he stayed with a few friends, engaged in nothing else night and day than praying for all men and for the churches throughout the world according to his usual custom. And while he was praying, a vision presented itself to him three days before he was taken. And behold, the pillow under his head seemed to him on fire. Upon this, turning to those that were with him, he said to them prophetically, I must be burnt alive. Now let me just mention, when you look at the early writings after the New Testament, you still see some, at least, I'm not saying these things happen or not, I wasn't there, and again, this isn't in Scripture, but we still do see testimonies of visions and so forth going on uh, during these times. And so we see that here, at least with Polycarp, writings concerning that. And when those who sought for him were at hand, he departed to another dwelling, whither his pursuers immediately came after him. And when they found him not, they seized upon two youths that were there, one of them being subjected to torture, confessed. It was thus impossible that he should continue hid, 
since those that betrayed him were of his own household. The Aaronarch, then, whose office is the same as that of Cleronomus, by name Herod, hastened to bring him into the stadium. This all happened that he might fulfill his special lot, being made a partaker of Christ, and that they who betrayed him might undergo the punishment of Judas himself. So he's betrayed, and it's, it's told where he's, where he's at. His pursuers then, along with horsemen and taking the youth with them, went forth at supper time on the day of the preparation with their usual weapons, as if going out against a robber. And being come about evening to the place where he was, they found him lying down in the upper room of a certain little house, from which he might have escaped into another place, but he refused, saying, The will of God be done. And when he heard that they were come, he went down and spake with them. And as those that were present marveled at his age and constancy, some of them said, Was so much an effort made to capture such a venerable man? He's about 86 at this time. Immediately then, in that very hour, he ordered that something to eat and drink should be set before them, as much indeed as they cared for, while he besought them to allow him an hour to pray without disturbance. So the soldiers come in. He says, you know, set before them food and stuff to eat. And he asks, can I pray for one hour before we go? And they grant that. And on their giving him leave, he stood and prayed, being full of the grace of God, so that he could not cease for two full hours. So he prays for two hours, not one. To the astonishment of them that heard him, insomuch that many began to repent that they had come forth against so godly and venerable an old man. Now, as soon as he had ceased praying, having made mention of all that he had at any time come in contact with him, both small and great, illustrious and obscure, as well as the whole Catholic Church throughout the world, the time of his departure having arrived, they set him upon an ass and conducted him into the city, the day being that of the great Sabbath. And the Aaronarch, Herod, accompanied by his father, both riding in a chariot, met him, And taking him up into the chariot, they seated themselves beside him and endeavored to persuade him, saying, What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in sacrificing with the other ceremonies observed on such occasions, and to make so and and so make sure of safety? But he at first gave them no answer. And when they continued to urge him, he said, I shall not do as you advise me. So they, having no hope of persuading him, began to speak bitter words unto him and cast him with violence out of the chariot, insomuch that in getting down from the carriage, he dislocated his leg by the fall. But without being disturbed, as if suffering nothing, he went eagerly forward with all haste and was conducted to the stadium where the tumult was so great that there was no possibility of being hurt. So they cast him out of the chariot, he dislocates his leg, and yet they bring him to the stadium. Now as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. No one who, who it was that uh, no one saw who it was who spoke to him, but those of the brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, "Have respect to thy old age." and other similar things according to their customs, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen, then in the stadium, and waving his hand towards them, while with groans he looked up to heaven, said, away with the atheists. So in other words, he points to all the pagans and says, away with the atheists. 
Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And when the proconsul yet again pressed him and said, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, he answered, Since thou art vainly urgent that, as thou sayest, I should swear by the fortune of Caesar, and pretendest not to know who and what I am, hear hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn what the doctrines of Christianity are, appoint me a day and thou shalt hear them. The proconsul replied, Persuade the people. But Polycarp said, To thee I have thought it right to offer an account of my faith. For we are taught to give all due honor to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand, and these will I cast to these will I cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. But again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beasts, if thou wilt not repent. But Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire. And this is a well-known statement from church history. Thou threatenest me with fire, which burneth for an hour, and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thou wilt. Well, the time is going to have to have us stop there. So... As for now, we will just stop, and Lord willing, next week we will finish the martyrdom of Polycarp. But as you can see, 86 years old, remains steadfast, remains faithful when he's told out the beasts that I can throw you to, I can have you burned. And he just faithfully, boldly, in a godly way, proclaims the truth and will suffer martyrdom for that. Any last questions? Any comments? Yes, Howard. Just imagine when they're in the chariot with him, right? Probably talking and sounding and smiling really nice. What's the harm? What's the harm? And, and it's when he won't give in and compromise, then they show their true colors. Yep. We all need to take a lesson of that now. Yep. People will smile in our face and teach us that, but we need to ask ourselves if that's what they're all doing. Hold firm. Get specific. See what happens. Yep, yep, the mask comes off. Yep, yep, exactly. And men have not changed. Yep, <laughs> yep, exactly. Well, you see the two sides of grace as well, you know, and, the, and the men who, who stand fast, right? Because there's the grace that saves, we save by grace alone, and then there's the grace that God bestows upon us to, as he sanctifies us and as we grow in the Lord. And then there's that grace for a man to stand in, in the light of all that and have that, you know, those sorts of All right, Howard, would you close us in a word of prayer? Oh, Lord, again we come to you with praise and thanksgiving this morning. Just thanking you, and I can't sit here and think of, you know, you know history, and we think of, you know, you know, God.